there's always fighting and you know stuff going on behind the scenes but they seem to be very unified and harmonious just very well managed like the message and every, everything is so well thought out and packaged and delivered there's so much attention to detail and attention to what the fans perspective what are they going to think of this 93x presents the celebration rock podcast with steven hyden This is the Celebration Rock Podcast, presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. It is Vitalogyology, Part 7. The end. No more Pearl Jam after this. We will never talk about Pearl Jam ever again on the Celebration Rock Podcast. Alright, that's probably not true, but like, we will not be talking, we will not be even saying the letters P or J for a while after this, because we have gone to the wall with Pearl Jam in this podcast for the past month. Now, by the way, if you haven't been listening, we've, we've done an entire history of Pearl Jam on the Celebration Rock podcast. We've gone through all the albums. We're talking about all the eras. Uh, and we're doing this because Pearl Jam is being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this week. Later this week, they're being inducted. So we've been celebrating by looking at the band and its history. But now we're at the end. And we're looking at the last 11 years of the band's history. We're talking about the self-titled record from 2006. Talking about, uh, talking about, <laughs> we're talking about 2009's Backspacer. And we're talking about 2013's Lightning Bolt. The late career Pearl Jam records. Um, to me, you know, these records all fit together. Because, you know, we've now reached the dad rock phase of Pearl Jam. And, you know, I say that with affection. You know, I kind of have a love-hate relationship with the term dad rock because I feel like people bring it up. uh, I think it's an insulting term. You know, they do it to put bands down. It's a way to say that, like, you're not really cool, you know, because dads like you. You know, you're the cargo shorts band. You're the, you know... Wearing sandals and like the tank top that doesn't fit very well type band. I'm trying to think of other dad cliches, but you know, you get the gist. But on the other hand, you know, I'm a dad and I like rock music. So, you know, dad rock to me is like the greatest thing in the world. I mean, I don't, I don't know why you would even put dad rock down. I mean, dad, dads are great. Rock is great. Dad rock together, it's like peanut butter and jelly as far as I'm concerned. You know, to me, when I use the term dad rock, I am, I, I'm going to use it as a term of endearment to describe a, a legacy band, a band that you can depend on, a band that if you buy a concert ticket to see them, you know that they will be great and you know that they, that they won't cancel the show or that weird things won't happen when you get there. You know, there won't be any of that bullshit. Like you'll, you'll buy your ticket. They're going to play for three hours. They're going to sound amazing. They're going to play some new songs that maybe you don't know, but for the most part, it's going to be hits, and you're going to have a great time. That's what Pearl Jam is, and that's what they've become in the last 10 years or so. You know, at at, at some point, sooner than we think, there won't be the Rolling Stones anymore. The Rolling Stones won't be touring. 
Uh, and when that happens, you know, who's going to replace them? Well, you have you two. You know, I guess they're kind of next in line. But, you know, I really think Pearl Jam and probably the Foo Fighters, like these are going to be the new sort of like top tier bands. Like the bands that can play stadiums because even people who don't really care about the band will go see them. You know, like people go see the Stones now. A lot of those people have never heard Sticky Fingers or they don't own Goat's Head Soup. You know, they go see the Stones because it's a rite of passage. You go to see the Stones because that's like the only band that you can see in a stadium. So if you want that kind of stadium rock experience, you got to go see the Stones. Pearl Jam, I think, is going to be that band if they're not already. You know, they, they're probably already in that position. Uh, that sort of, like, you know, you know, Bruce Springsteen is also in that in that kind of class of artists. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, this is not a minor accomplishment. I think especially with a band like Pearl Jam's history, which, you know, again, you know, as, as we've talked about their evolution over the past 25 years, you know, for me, I would say that they've had a, a, a fascinating arc. And they've made a lot of choices that aren't conventional. They've, and they've made those choices, I think, for the greater good. You know, I think it's because it's, it's made them more interesting. I think if they had gone down a more purely commercial path in the 90s, that they would have burned out and they would be stuck in that era. But because they had a lot of curveballs in their career and that they were willing to, to sort of do things in an unconventional way, it's made them unique. And I think it's like held their fan base to the band. Um, but, you know, there's a less charitable way of describing Pearl Jam's career arc, which is to say that they've had a checkered career, you know, from a commercial standpoint. Um, you know, they haven't done the things that U2 has done. You know, U2, they were huge in the 80s. They were huge for about half of the 90s. And then in the last half of the 90s, they fell off. You know, they did, they did the pop mark thing. Uh, you know, they put out the record pop in 97. And... Uh, you know, that's a period when, Pearl, when when U2 could have been finished after that sort of debacle. But then they came back in the early 2000s. They put out that record, All That You Can't Leave Behind, and then they have that single Beautiful Day. And Beautiful Day is a huge song that essentially re- reboots U2's career in the same way that Start Me Up rebooted the Rolling Stones' career in the early 80s. After, you know, I mean, the Rolling Stones had some girls, of course, but... You know, Start Me Up was the song that kind of carried the Stones through the rest of the 80s. And Beautiful Day was a song that kind of helped carry you two into its subsequent albums in the 2000s. Pearl Jam has never really tried to have a reboot on that level. You know, they've never tried to have this sort of easy pop single that could be played in stadiums. In a way, I think Backspacer might have been... You could say that maybe that was an attempt to do that. That's a very sort of slick pop rock record. You have a song in there called Just Breathe, which uh, my sister used as her wedding song. (laughs) This beautiful kind of acoustic Eddie Eddie Vedder song. Um, You know, there's not a lot of Pearl Jam songs from the 90s that you could use at your wedding. You know, are you going to get married to Nothing Man? Well, I guess, but that's sort of like a... It's sort of an... uh, uh, You know, that's a little bit ominous in terms of foreboding there <laughs> you know maybe better man you know again that's that's kind of an ominous song too to use at your wedding but just breathe you know pearl jam had reached the point where they were going to write a song like that like a sort of purely romantic song um so maybe that counts as their beautiful day moment but i mean the reality is is that 
you know, Pearl Jam, I think, settled into a groove at this time where they knew that they weren't going to be the band that they were in the 90s, but that they could still be a huge band, that they could still be the band that, in some respects, benefits from nostalgia. Because, you know, if you're, if you're playing stadiums, you know, for Pearl Jam to play stadiums now, a lot of those people, you know, are going to be people that just knew you in the 90s and are going to see you again because they love 10. So there's that element to them, but there's also the element of people who just love Pearl Jam so much uh, that they don't care how Pearl Jam exists in sort of the greater culture. That, uh, you know, they're going to buy the records, they're going to buy the concert tickets, um, because Pearl Jam has successfully created its own world that's impervious to the outside world. So so they're that band too. They're Radiohead, but they're also a little bit of Bruce Springsteen at the same time. That's the model that Pearl Jam has, and what they've had in the last 10 years. Um, the other question, of course, with these albums are, are they any good? <laughs> you know, does Pearl Jam still make good records? Do they still make records that matter? Or do they just make records as an excuse to tour? I'm going to say yes. I actually like these records. The, the self-titled record I'm not a huge fan of. If, if I were to rank Pearl Jam records, um, that would be my, my least favorite. I know there's plenty of people that disagree with me, including my guests in this episode, and we're going to talk about that. Um, but I think Backspacer is actually a, a, a pretty strong late-period Pearl Jam record, um, particularly the song Amongst the Waves. Um, not Again, not a beautiful day-type size hit, but it is one of the only Pearl Jam songs from like the last 10 years that I would put on my like all-time Pearl Jam mixtape. And it does show that they're still capable of writing these sort of big songs. You know, Lightning Bolt as well. Lightning Bolt is an interesting record because I feel like that's sort of a a, a compendium in a way of everything that they've ever done in their career. It's like a greatest hits record without any hits. You know, which is kind of like my favorite record that like a veteran act makes. Like David Bowie did that with The Next Day. You know, like Black Star was his last record and that was just totally unique in his catalog. But The Next Day, the record before that was his greatest hits without any hits record where he just sort of drew from throughout his career there was like a a glam rock song and there was a berlin song and there was like a let's let's dance type song to me that's what lightning bolt is and i'll and i'll also stump for the song pendulum from lightning bolt being a very strong sort of late period pearl jam song so we're at the end here and we're talking about these records, but we're also sort of summing up where we feel like Pearl Jam is at this point in their career and also just in the larger sort of narrative of rock history. So I wanted to bring in a guy who would really help me with that. And uh, the guy I brought on is Mark Wilkerson. And Mark Wilkerson will be familiar to Pearl Jam fans because he's one of the co-authors of Pearl Jam 20, the big book that came out in conjunction with the documentary. Uh, back in, I guess, 2011. And Mark, of course, you know, he's friends with Eddie Vedder. He spent a lot of time with Eddie Vedder. So he has that perspective, and he talks about that a bit in this in this uh, interview. Um, but he's also, you know, he, he knows his rock history. You know, he's a huge fan of The Who, uh, which is how he, uh, of course, got to know Eddie Vedder. Um, and, yeah, I think Mark has a lot of in- interesting things to say about, like, where Pearl Jam is right now. So that's what we talked about. We talked about these records. We talked about Pearl Jam's stature. 
So let's get into it. Here's me and Mark Wilkerson. So, you know, before we talk about the three Pearl Jam albums, sort of the last three Pearl Jam records are the most recent ones uh, in this episode. You know, I'm curious, you know, you've actually entered the Pearl Jam orbit. You were a co-author of Pearl Jam 20, and I know that you have a relationship with Eddie Vedder. Can you talk about, like, how did that come about? Yeah, I did. um, You know, I I grew up in England, and um, I I was a huge, and still am a huge Who fan and Pete Townsend fan. And um, I guess that that's, well, that definitely is the common thread between me and Ed. But um, I uh, kind of took it upon myself, not knowing at all what I was getting into, to write, a uh, well, to kind of study Pete's life a little bit after I read a biography of, of him back in like 96 that I didn't think was very good and um, was kind of misleading and incomplete and stuff. So I started kind of studying Pete's life on my own as a hobby. And uh, I kind of got so much into it that it became like a, um, an online thing that I shared with everybody, and then it turned into a self-published book. And then uh, eventually one thing went to another, and I wound up doing an interview with Pete, and it led to uh, like a, uh, a book that was published through a conventional publisher. And at that point, I wanted to get a forward by somebody that was not um, in the band and that was uh, somebody of my own generation, um, and uh, my first choice, of course, was Ed, but I didn't know how on earth to get in touch with him or anything. But anyway, I, I, I was able to get in touch or, or to get a copy of the book to him, of my self-published book, and um, and I asked him, you know, would you uh, be willing to do the forward to my to my new book, the conventionally published, which was just like a revised version with a bunch more first-hand information and stuff. And um, he wound up calling me and asking and talking to me a little bit about my background and, and where I, you know, where I was coming from as far as my my uh, love for Pete's music and everything. And um, and he wound up writing the forward to my book, and uh, that was in 2007 that he did that. So um, that was the beginning of it, and we just kind of always kept in touch uh, since then. And how did you end up getting involved in Pearl Jam 20? Um, what I did was, uh, we'd always, we kind of, after he did the forward to my book, we kept in touch, like a phone call every now and then, or a text or an email, <clears throat> uh, mostly around who stuff. And um, at one point, I had sent him like a binder with uh, with a timeline in it, uh, like a real simple timeline of, of his career. And I said, you know, this is basically how I started my book on Pete, and if you ever were interested in me doing one on you, I sure as hell would. So um, I sent him that, not knowing that at, at that time they had already started working on a, a um, like a 20th anniversary book. And uh, he really liked the timeline format, and I guess it was something that they hadn't considered. So um, he got back in touch with me, and pretty quickly I was involved in some book meetings and stuff, and uh, and uh, that's that's how it that's how I got involved. So, you know, it's interesting that you got that you got to know Eddie, you know, because of your, you know, of your scholarship of the Who and uh, of course Vetter is a big fan of the Who, famous for that. Um what do you see as parallels between Pearl Jam and the Who? I mean, do you see any kind of connections in terms of like the the arc of their careers or or how they've kind of approached music? I think sometimes I try to I, I don't know, I guess cuz the the my perspective kind of is always trying to compare them, but I 
don't see a ton of comparisons um, uh, just because of the personalities involved. And there was so much friction and dysfunction in The Who, and you don't see that in Pearl Jam. There's a lot of harmony and, and uh, oneness in their approach, <laughs> and which is something that you never saw with The Who, uh, and still don't, it seems like. But um, I always try to, like when I was looking at these three albums we were going to talk about, um, like one of them kind of was almost a concept album, and I'm like, yeah, oh, there's a good connection, but <laughs> but um, it's like I try too hard a little bit, I think sometimes. <laughs> make, so I, I don't I don't see a ton of good connections, but yeah, it's just the fact that we I'm a huge fan and he's a huge fan, and, and I almost <laughs> interrupted you when you said that it's. Uh, famous for his Who fandom because it's like the understatement of the century. <laughs> I have been involved in like Who conventions, and I'm personally probably borderline nuts about Pete's music and the Who. And I really, you know, feel very strongly that that it rescued me from a very difficult time in my life, and and maybe even saved my life. And and Ed feels that strongly about it. And um and and like I was saying, I've been. I've been I've had conversations with a ton of people that are very very hardcore Who fans, and he's right at the top. <laughs> yeah, I mean I would say uh, yeah, in terms of their careers, I think you're right. There's not a lot of parallels there. I mean I think sonically you you can definitely hear the Who influence on Pearl Jam, particularly on the first album that we'll talk about in this episode, the self-titled record from 2006. I think you know Life Wasted has kind of opens like with some Pete Townsend type strums at the beginning and it kind of and you can hear occasionally you know Matt Cameron uh emulating uh you know Keith Moon type drum fills and songs especially like kind of big kind of anthemic songs um but you know it, it's curious I mean you know we, we've been doing all these episodes on Pearl Jam albums and of course all of the 90s albums all got their own episode and now okay. we're we're squeezing three albums into one and that, right. you know, and this often ha- happens with with rock bands where at the beginning of their career time seems to move very slow and mm-hmm. everything that they do is weighted with significance and then mm-hmm. sort of in the later years time speeds up and albums come and albums go and it's not really a judgment on the albums but it's just you know things kind of move quicker and they don't have maybe this, they're not freighted with the same significance. I mean, mm-hmm. like looking at the period of these albums, do you have any sort of broad statements about this? You know, I, this, I guess this is like late Pearl Jam at this point. I guess yeah. depending on how long Pearl Jam is together, this may eventually be known as mid-period Pearl Jam, but you know, now it's late Pearl Jam. Like, yeah. Where do you think that they're at at this point, like on these three albums, you know, just talking broadly? It seems like when looking at the songs, <clears throat> looking at this subject matter, coming from like the perspective of, of what's Ed talking about, there's a there's I think mortality is probably the heaviest, the the most covered subject on all three of these. Uh, for a couple of the, I think I think the later two albums are more uh, have more in common than than the, the first. Right, um, because of the war, it's like the it's like the Pearl Jam album is a reaction, in large part to to the beginning of War in Iraq, which started in uh, March two thousand and three. Right, and I think this was recorded like the following year, like oh four and oh five. But um, it seems like mortality, big time, you know, on all three of these records: um, the passing of time, what it means, standing up for yourself, making sure you make a mark while you can. 
um, you know? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I also think that musically, there was a bit of a retrenchment. I mean, especially, uh, you know, let's start, I guess, by talking about the self-titled record from 2006. And, you know, as you mentioned, it was a record, you know, very much informed by the Iraq War. And you can see yeah. that in the song titles, Worldwide Suicide, Severed Hand, Marker in the Sand, Parachutes, Army Reserve, you know, it's yeah. not, you don't have to look too deep to see the resonance of current events on this record at, at the time. Yeah. Um, but musically, I think, you know, the story on this record is Pearl Jam sort of returning to a big rock sound, it, it coming yeah. after Binaural and Riot Act, which were both you know, experimental, introspective record, records, certainly rock moments on those albums, but uh, I think in the scope of Pearl Jam's career, generally considered to be departure albums. Um, you know, it, I think another important thing is that this was their first album in four years, the, you know, which, which at that point was a very long gap between Pearl Jam records. It's sort of become standard now in the, in the latter part of their career. Um, you know, listening to this record, revisiting it, um, I have to say that in that in terms of Pearl Jam albums, this is my least favorite album. Is that right? It is. I, you know, I and, I, and I'm going to let you try to dissuade me from that. Okay. But but you know, for me, you know, listening to this record, you know, I think that there's some pretty good songs on it. Like I like the song "Life Wasted." Um, yeah. I. Uh, I've actually always loved the song Unemployable. I always feel like that's an underrated deep mm-hmm. cut in the Pearl Jam canon. Um, mm-hmm. But for the most part, you know, to me, this sounds like a band sort of limbering up again after not being in the studio for a while. Like, I've, especially after Riot Act, which I think is such an interesting record, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of different kinds of stuff. There's experiments that don't always work, but they're interesting to revisit. Pearl Jam, I think, the, the self-titled record, it's, it's, I think it's the closest that they've ever come to making sort of a straight-down-the-line rock album. Mm-hmm. Uh, the songs all kind of sound alike. Uh, they're all, you know, sort of mid-tempo to fast. I mean, there's not a lot of slow songs. There's a song, Gone, I guess, which would be the exception to that. But for the most part, it's a mm-hmm. kind of a pedal-to-the-metal type um, rock record. And mm-hmm. I don't know, to me, it sounds a little generic, like this, mm. this to me is, is the, is, you know, like people that don't like Pearl Jam sometimes accuse them of sounding like a generic rock band. And I feel mm. like this is the album that comes closest to living up to that criticism. Mm. Now, I feel you chomping at the bit to, <laughs> to discredit my argument here. Like, what, like, how would you defend this album? Like, this or, actually, I don't know. I, I haven't like ever sat down and ranked my favorite Pearl Jam albums, but this is, uh, among my favorites, especially in the, you know, like, post-yield. Um, and uh, maybe that's not fair to group them that like, that way, but, like, the you know, you were saying it's a return to form, and surely, sure, it is those first three, like, life-wasted, worldwide suicide, and comatose together. Um, I don't know if there's a... That, that's a very strong first three, and I, I and I really do... I think there's some some real gems buried in there. I think marker in the sand is really strong. I think gone is really strong. Um, and then on a completely different, uh, from a completely different approach, come back. Um, I think is a very strong 
I think it's a very strong record all the way through, and I think um, that there's a lot of emotion in it, um, and there's a lot of, like, it's a reaction to the war, and then also another thing that was very influential in this record with all the, the discussion of mortality was Johnny Ramone uh, passing away back in '04, and Eddie was there. Um, and, you know, both of those things together, all the, the real heavy emotion, and I think it really comes through. So I, I feel like it's a very strong record, and I don't, um, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't think of um, the songs being particularly similar or generic. That's just not, the, I've never thought of it that way. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's one that I always come back to. I mean, do you feel like the band approached it in a way as sort of like a return to form? I mean, it, I mean, it sounds like that when you listen to the record. It sounds like okay, we made these two records that were sort of weird and polarizing, and yeah. they weren't hugely popular. So let's get back to making a record that's going to sound really good live. I mean, that, that's what it sounds like when you listen to it. I mean, do you feel yeah. like that was basically the band's approach? I think it could have been for sure i I don't know but yeah it it certainly could have been it seems like it was deliberate yeah yeah you know a record that i really like actually from this period is the record that comes after it which is backspacer because i feel like in a way you know again like in my mind the self-titled pearl jam record is sort of like a warm-up for backspacer Mm. um and you know Backspacer, in a way, was a comeback record for Pearl Jam in a bit, in the sense that, like, I mean, it was the it was their first album to debut at number one on the Billboard album charts, I think, since uh, since No Code. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they sold it through Target, too. Yeah, they did. So that was a big was thing. The, remember, sorry to interrupt. The, um, the remember, uh, I think Riot Act was the last one they did on Epic. Right. And the Pearl Jam self-titled album was on, like, uh, J Records or something. Maybe that was part of it. I think I can't remember. But Backspacer was the first one they did uh, that they self-released on Monkey Wrench, right. their own label. So they had these, all, like, a lot of, um, uh, like, unique straight-to-retail deals, and one of them was Target. Yeah. And... Um... I don't know. I mean, and this was another. I mean, I was revisiting uh, Backspacer this this morning, and it, it's a it's a pretty like slick record in a lot of ways. It's like you know, it it was their first first album with Brendan O'Brien producing also in a long time, and they talked about yeah. how you know they kind of gave Brendan O'Brien a little bit freer reign in the studio to help them shape the songs, mm-hmm. kind of based on Brendan O'Brien's experience working with Bruce Springsteen, because mm-hmm. uh, Bruce Springsteen had produced Magic. Uh, which is a great Bruce Springsteen record in 2007. And I read a quote from Eddie Vedder saying, basically, you know, if Bruce Springsteen let Brendan O'Brien help him, you know, shape the songs on magic, then, you know, maybe we should let him help us on this record. Um, So, I mean, you have the song Just Breathe, which uh, ended up being somewhat of a hit for Pearl Jam. Um, Actually, when my sister was married, she got married to Just Breathe. Like, that was a song she walked down the aisle to. So, All right. you know, sort of a unique Pearl Jam song in the respect that it's it's a straightforward love song. Yeah, um, I, I can't remember which show it was, but a show that I was at recently, I don't think it was Wrigley Field, but there was a, um, Ed had a, uh, a soldier, like a Iraq war veteran, come up on stage and uh, with his fiance, well, with his girlfriend at that time. And that was Wrigley Field. He, 
Okay. I was he at that show. to her while Ed, yeah, I was there too. He, he, he played Just Breathe while, while the guy was proposing to his, to his girlfriend. So. Yeah. Yeah. So it's definitely one of, you know, I mean, Pearl Jam has written pretty songs before that, but that is definitely the first wedding song that they'd ever written. Right. And, and, and it shows sort of a new, I think, comfortability within themselves that they could do something like that. I think you know, there's a sort of a comfort yep. level, um, you know, and then there's, so, you know, there, there's, there's some really kind of zippy rock songs on here, kind of new wavy sounding songs. Mm-hmm. And then there's two sort of big anthemic ballads at the heart of the record. I mean, you have just breathe, then you have amongst the waves and unthought unknown. Mm-hmm. Uh, the latter two songs I think are like maybe the two best Pearl Jam songs of the last 10 years. Like, definitely my favorite. Awesome songs. Um, and overall, I, I don't know. This record just goes on very easily. I mean, it's, I, I mean, Pearl Jam albums can get a little unwieldy. I think this album clocks in at about 39 minutes. So, yeah. uh, I don't know. It's a record I like a lot. In a way, I guess to make a Who comparison, it, it reminds me a little of a record like Face Dances. You know, like when when the Who it was like the the first post Keith Moon record, like when they just kind of made a really good kind of straightforward pop rock record. Yeah, no, I can see I, I can see that for sure. That um, I would agree with that. It's it's kind of interesting because I think it was Brendan O'Brien that back when they were doing verses, um, he heard uh, I think it was a demo of Better Man. And he said, oh, that's, that's going to be a hit. And immediately when Ed heard that, he shelved it. <laughs> so it's like, you know, I'm, it's, they went from being completely resistant to, uh, to producer input to, to welcoming it, you know. So, but it took them this long to get that far. Yeah, and it's like they, they came into Backspace just saying, okay, we will, you know, we will um, take your input and, uh, and defer to it. And so we wound up with... Uh, uh, short, relatively short, um, like you said, kind of, some of them are pretty slick, poppy kind of songs. And then on the, from my, like looking at, um, especially like Ed's life around this period, um, he's coming from the perspective of, he had a, um, uh, a daughter in 04 and a daughter in 08. So now he's a dad. Um, and the year after Backspace came out, he got married too. So the, it's like, it's full of hope. Um, it's, it's lighter as far as, you know, it's not as, especially to me, like the centerpiece is amongst the waves. And there's a couple of verses in amongst the waves where he's saying, you know, the sun's coming through the clouds and rays. And, and it's like, that's his whole perspective for this thing. And like a song like The Fixer, I always took it that, it's like a dad, <laughs> yeah. You know, as, a, as a dad, like I'm going to take care of everything for you, and I may be completely wrong there, but it just kind of fits the whole, you know, the whole um, perspective that I can imagine he's coming from there. Well, and again, I think, and I think that's a, I think that's a totally that 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 interpretation totally makes sense. I mean, you know, again, I I just come back to the word sort of comf- uh, comfort, <laughs> mm-hmm. like for this era, and like comfort can be a dangerous word in rock and roll. I mean, like no one, it, it's not always considered a compliment, you know, to say that a band sounds comfortable. But like with, right. with a band like Pearl Jam, which, you know, when they were so huge in the '90s, you know seems so uncomfortable, particularly Eddie Vedder in mm-hmm. his role as a rock star and like where and how he was perceived. 
um, you know, I think this is around the time when Pearl Jam, in a way, is becoming the band that they wanted to become all along. I mean, I have this theory about Eddie Vedder, and, and I don't know, you know, you know him a bit, so you can confirm this or, or not. But you know, my my sense of him from the outside looking in is that he was always a guy that he never wanted to be sort of the hot young rock star. That mm-hmm. in his mind that he would have rather have always have been like sort of the the elder statesman journeyman type guy you know mm-hmm. that the guy who has like a lot of experience under his belt and a lot of wisdom you know and i think that's mm-hmm. why in the 90s he was always hanging out with people like that like neil young and mike watt and pete townsend and um yeah yep. and just like the guys that he looks up to like the, to me the big three that he looks up to are pete neil and bruce right and that's that's exactly how they you know how they are are perceived and it's like now he is one of those guys and you can yeah. just see that he's a lot more comfortable in his skin yeah. i mean th- does that make sense yeah absolutely yeah I, I totally agree with that and and he's all about like the context of i don't know he's he i think he came at this from the very beginning as a fan and he's still just a total music geek and fan and collector of stuff that has to do with his heroes and, you know, yeah. So I don't think he ever wanted to separate and be the, the, uh, the focus. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, another, you know, sort of important thing that was happening with Pearl Jam around this time, around the backspacer time is that they were starting to do more retrospective stuff. Like in 2009, they re-released 10 with a new, mm-hmm. Uh, mixed by Brendan O'Brien, and then of course, the Pearl Jam twenty book and film came out a couple of years after that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from you know, kind of being in the band's orbit around that time. I mean, do you think that was um, like a natural progression for them, or was it difficult at all? Because they'd never seemed before that like a band that was all that comfortable with sort of looking back or you mm-hmm. know, mem- you know, commemorating themselves. You know, yeah, in that I think, way. Um... Uh, you know, from what I'd read about the the reissue of Ten, um, I can't remember if that was. I think that might have been the last thing to kind of for, fulfill their record contract. They needed one more album, yeah, okay. so that may have been a big part of it. But then also, of course, there's always been there'd always been kind of dissatisfaction with the mix um, of that record. So there were two things there, and but the thing is, again, with Pearl Jam, they're so fan um because because of where they're coming from as 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 like fans that were steeped in music all along um they've always been very fan centered and i think when they hit the 20th anniversary when they're approaching the 20th anniversary they wanted to um do something special for the fans with the book and the film so i don't know if they were i think they tried to make it more about the uh, the fans than themselves at that point i'm not sure if they were 100% 100% comfortable in taking the time to look back, but they, I think maybe they felt like they needed to. I mean, do you feel like, you know, and again, you know, I'm not asking you to read minds or anything, but just from being kind of an observer of that, like, do you, because sometimes, like, when you revisit your back pages, you learn things about yourself that you had forgotten, and sometimes mm-hmm. those things can be applied looking forward. I mean, do you feel like that happened with Pearl Jam at all? Like, do you think there was anything that they were, were reminded of or that they learned about themselves through that process of kind of doing the book and the film and all that? 
I don't know. I, I don't know how personally involved. Um, I mean, they dug through their archives for sure, and I went out there and dug through their um, all their archive press clippings and stuff. And um, but I don't know how. And I and they gave interviews and that kind of thing. But I think they they remain throughout pretty forward looking. Um, and they learn from their experiences as they go, but I'm not sure how much, uh, looking back, they're comfortable doing, you know? Yeah. And I don't know any of the other, the only person I've, I've had a relationship as far as friendship and everything with is Ed, and I don't know any of the other guys in the band, so. Right. Um. Well, let's talk about Lightning Bolt, the most recent record. And, and this is, of course, assuming that there does, that there's not another Pearl Jam album that drops before this episode runs. I, yeah, think, right. I, I think we're probably okay. Um, hey, can, yeah. can we? Can I? Can I interrupt for one second? Yeah. <laughs> I want my favorite song, at least right now, on Backspacer, is Johnny Guitar. Oh um, right. It, which is like I was reading about it, and um, they said uh, I think Ed said it's something to do with Elvis Costello or something. Like he, it reminded him of that, and I'm, I, 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 to me, that's like a Thin Lizzy song. It sounds like Thin Lizzy to me. Right. Um, and oh, it's totally. Like, it, it doesn't sound like anything else on the record to me. Um, and I've never really paid a ton of attention to the lyrics until a couple of weeks ago. And I was just kind of flipping through the, um, I was listening to the vinyl and I was flipping through the lyric thing. And I'm like, you know, he's just looking at a Johnny guitar Watson album cover and he's describing it. That's what he's doing. And he's thinking about this chick wearing a red dress. And he's, <laughs> he's kind of projecting. And I thought it was really, pretty awesome but it's just a it's a great song and it just reminds me of Bill Linnett and Thin Lizzy yeah but anyway that's a great song I just song. wanted to, to make sure uh, I got that yeah and, and again I, I gotta do another shout out on that album for Unthought Unthought Known that's a great song too like you yep. mentioned Amongst the Waves being kind of a centerpiece song but those two songs back to back are like Pearl Jam Heaven on that record yeah and yeah. Uh, but yeah let, let, let's talk about Lightning Bolt this, this record came out in 2013 and yep. You know, I gotta say that you know, when the record came out, I thought it was pretty good, but I didn't give it a whole lot of thought. And in the, in, in the years since, it's it's grown in my estimation. I actually mm-hmm. quite like this record. I actually feel like it's one of those albums that is sort of like a greatest hits album without any hits. In that, if you haven't been paying attention to Pearl Jam, you know, since the '90s, like you know, like the last Pearl Jam album you heard was No Code or Yield. Mm-hmm. Um, Lightning Bolt is actually a pretty good way to catch up on what Pearl Jam has been doing for the last like 15 years. Like it kind of covers a lot of the different periods. Like there's, uh, you know, you have the Zippy Rock songs at the beginning of the record, which are reminiscent of like the previous two albums. Mm-hmm. And then there's also some really good kind of moody, ballady type songs. Like my favorite song on the record is probably Pendulum, mm-hmm. which to me sounds like sort of a callback to the right act been oral mm-hmm. era. You know, there was a, there was this weird thing with Pearl jam. I think particularly on the album riot act. And we talked about this and that in the, in the riot act episode, but in, I feel like on riot act Pearl jam invented the national, you know, I mean the national made one album when riot act came out, but like they sound a lot like the national to me on that record. 
Uh, oh, really? Where they're sort of like this moody, introspective band, and like it's not so much about the riffs; it's more about mood and sort of the the sound of of the lead singer's voice. And mm-hmm. and Vetter and Matt Berninger, I see some similarities in in sort of the you know the the low kind of crooning quality to their voice, especially like when Eddie Vedder is in that mode. I mean, Eddie Vedder, of course, can be the arena rock singer who is just, you know, kind of belting out and, and singing huge, but he can also go into sort of a low kind of quiet mode and mm-hmm. pendulum, I feel like has qualities of that. I also mm-hmm. have to speak up in favor of the song sirens. Mm-hmm. Like when this song came out, I feel like it was sort of polarizing among Pearl Jam fans. A lot of people thought, you know, that it sounded like this big mainstream rock ballad, which essentially right. it is, or like, or like even a power ballad, um, yep. To me, when I hear Sirens, it to me it is Pearl Jam's late period U2 song, and like, mm-hmm. I, and I mean that as a compliment. Like, it, it, it to me it, it it feels similar in spirit to like, you know, uh, uh, what's that song? Uh, you got stuck in a moment that you can't get out of. Like songs like that, like the big mm-hmm. kind of ballad songs that U2 has have kind of specialized in in the last fifteen years. Like that's Pearl mm-hmm. Jam's version of that. And um, I think it's I think it's really good. Like if you like, it's a really yeah. good kind of power ballady song. And again, it's another example, kind of like "Just Breathe," um, of Pearl Jam. I think doing a kind of song that they would have maybe been embarrassed to do twenty years earlier because it wouldn't have been punk rock enough. But right. now they're comfortable enough in their skin where they can let that side of themselves out because they've always had that side, that sort of unabashed arena rock side um and for a while they had to temper it but lately they've let that out and uh i like it i mean it's like if you can do a song like that well you might as well do it um and what what are your like oh go ahead sorry it seems like it it seems like the 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 pearl jam eddie better approach to songs like that like if if we're going to call it a power ballad or whatever it always the the component that he always adds in there, it, which well, I, I guess the obvious one always with him, and I think it's the it's the thing that the the game changer is the sincerity and the conviction behind it for starters, but also just the vulnerability is like I think that's the component that's missing a lot from songs that are kind of like that that makes theirs totally unique is the is just the like the just the vulnerability. Yeah, I mean, there's, the, and I agree. I mean, there's something about that song. You, you mentioned mortality. Yeah. You know, when I listen to that song, it, it, it almost sounds like someone, like like a father or something, talking to his kid as he dies. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and I, I, I'm not totally sure what that song is about. Like when I read the lyrics. Yeah, I think he was. Uh... Like, like reading the lyrics, he's talking about like laying on a bed, and he reaches across when he hears the sirens, and like reaches out to you know to the person he's singing it to, which I was assumed was his wife. Yeah, and um, and and just no, it's like I don't know. To me, it's like um, that could easily be me, and I'm just grateful for this moment that I'm with you, and you know, and how long will it last? Who knows? And so, and and there's a lot of these kind of songs around this period. Or are the sirens the sound of like an AKG going off because he's flatlined? 
How about that? How about that for a tricky interpretation? Let's do some deep reading into these lyrics, man. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, the one that that, that really um, intrigued me when I saw the name of the song before I heard it was my father's son, just knowing, you know, alive and and this this huge uh, backstory um, of Ed's real father versus stepfather and the, and the whole story of the alive song. And I thought, Oh wow, this is going to be an interesting song, but it seems like, you know, my father's son is just a, it's a fictional, like a fantasy kind of song. It's almost like the, the, the little trilogy that he put together at the, the, um, you know, uh, at the inception of Pearl Jam that became part of the 10 album when he's talking about like this guy that grows up to be like a mass murderer and stuff like that. Um, so I was I was expecting one thing and got a completely different thing with my father's son. Yeah, what, can, you, can you talk more about that song? Well, yeah, it's, uh, I don't have the like the lyrics in front of me or anything, but he's talking about like um, you know, look what you passed on to me. I'm a psychopath and all this other stuff. Right. Uh, and I'm the next in line and all that. And so to me, I, I'm pretty literal when it comes to. Uh, lyrics so if there's hidden meaning and stuff it totally flew over my head <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it just seems like it's completely you know it's just something that he i don't know where it came from but yeah it's, um, but yeah. it's not it, it's not to do with what i thought it, if it if it is it's it's so um like obtuse it just totally missed me <laughs> i wonder you know because obviously you know with uh, with Eddie, like Bruce Springsteen, I mean, you know, Bruce Springsteen has a lot of songs uh, about fraught relationships between fathers and sons, and yeah. with, with Eddie Vedder's songs, it's usually about you know a son kind of living without a father, or or you know, sort of the after effects of being abandoned. Yeah. Um, I wonder if he does have like a like a happy father song in him at some point, because like because yeah. because Springsteen did kind of eventually. You know, moving that, you know, like he wrote Adam Raised a Cane, but then like 10 years later, there's like the song Walk Like a Man from yeah. Tunnel of Love, which is a much more affectionate song about his father. Yeah. Um, I'd be curious to see if on subsequent Pearl Jam albums, there's a version of Walk Like a Man for mm-hmm. uh, Eddie Vedder. We'll have to see. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, when I went to, uh, when I went to his house last year, he actually... But we were in his we did a we did a uh, an interview together. Um, he interviewed me for a book that I wrote, that I wrote that came out last year about um, Thomas Young, who was a Iraq War veteran who um, passed away a couple of years ago. And I got to know the last couple of years of his life. I did a book about him, and Ed was real close with Thomas too. And actually, Ed is the reason that I got to know about Thomas's story. But um, we were in his studio in basically his backyard in Seattle, and he had. After we were done with the interview, we started looking at some stuff around the studio and talking about the Who, of course. And um, he had some recordings. You know, his dad, his biological dad, was a singer, and he had some recordings of his dad actually singing. Um, and he was playing to me, and I mean, it's just uh, eerie because he sounds just like him, especially when he hits the the kind of lower register. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's pretty mind blowing to to listen to that stuff. You know, with him. Oh yeah, and uh, and yeah, totally. I think you know it, it, he got into the Who, um, coming from that perspective. And I have a my my story is totally different, but it resulted in in a, a, a missing father too. So, 
uh, and quadrophenia, it's like quadrophenia hit both of us at the same exact point in our lives. And, uh, and it's this story of this, you know, fucked up kid. And, uh, and it just hit both of us kind of the same way. Is that his favorite who album? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm... To me, it's like quadrophenia and I know, I know the first one he heard was, was who's next, but I think, I think he's coming at it from the same way I am that, that, uh, the quadrophenia is the, the gold standard. Yeah, I I remember I heard that album when I was 14, and it was the perfect age to hear that album. <laughs> yeah, I think I was maybe, yeah, 13, 14. And, and, you know, I mean, adolescence is hard enough, and then if you've got some other crap going on at the same time. You know, yeah. it's like the, the the quote that always stuck in my head. Pete said that, Pete said Quartafenia, he wrote Quartafenia to try and lubricate the passage uh, through adolescence. <laughs> <laughs> well, job well done, sir. Yeah, he oh, succeeded. Yeah. Well, you know, let's 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 talk big picture here with Pearl Jam for a couple of minutes. I mean, you know, they've gone through a lot of things in their career. There have been ups, there have been downs, but you know, they've endured. And I think, in some respects, they're as popular as they are as they ever were. At least, certainly, as a road attraction. I mean, I, I saw them play at Wrigley Field last year, two sold out shows, and uh, it was uh, you know an incredible thing to witness. I mean, I mean, are, is Pearl Jam basically going to be like the Rolling Stones? Like once, like when, because at some point the Rolling Stones won't be touring anymore. Um, I mean, is it like is Pearl Jam going to assume that mantle? You think? I mean, are they going to be the band that just kind of becomes the signature rock band that you can rely on to be on the road and to be around? Like I forever? can certainly see that. You know, I could see them in that kind of a role, and and I don't, I don't know that they wouldn't embrace that right um, you know um so yeah i think i could i think i could see that for sure and i and you know ed since the into the wild stuff came out in 2007 uh he's kind of gone off and, and done his own uh solo thing a little bit and done a bunch of solo shows and really uh not really surprisingly he's you know excelled in that direction too and got a um what was it? A Golden Globe for the Guaranteed song, and and uh, kind of gone off as a you know as a solo acoustic performer too. So, um, I personally I hope there's more of that too. But um, but yeah, I could see Pearl Jam kind of assuming the uh, the Rolling Stones mantle, and I guess better that than the. I don't know. Anything who related always seems to be uh, friction. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I, but I'd like to say, you know, they, they'd be the who in the future, but, you know, hopefully without all the bickering. And <laughs> I mean, what what do you think, you know, just, just from being a fan, like what would you say has enabled them to, to survive the way they have? Like what, what's their secret or what's the key? Um, I don't know, you know, like the relationship amongst all the band members, but there, and, and, you know, there has to be, I mean, anybody that's around each, each other, you know, my kids are in a band. There's, it, there's always fighting and, you know, stuff going on behind the scenes, but they seem to be very unified, um, and, and harmonious. They seem to be, well, they don't seem to be, they're really just, very well managed, like the message and every, everything is so well thought out and packaged and delivered. Um, it's just so well 
everything's so well executed, you know? It's like so deeply thought out, everything that they do. There's so much attention to detail and attention to what the fans, um, you know, like the fans' perspective, what are they going to think of this? Um, I don't know. I guess that's what I put it down to. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I mean, with Pearl Jam at this point, I mean, they've kind of accomplished everything that you could really want to accomplish as a rock band. And, you know, they're going to be inducted in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame um, here. So, I mean, we're really talking about, like, Pantheon discussions right now. You know, like, in terms of Pearl Jam, like, you know, I mean, you're a big fan of The Who. You know, I assume that you're a classic rock guy or you're classic rock conversant. Where does where would you put Pearl Jam? I guess in the pantheon of great rock bands, like I mean, like where do they rank? Would you say? I think like, well, the, I, I guess the the one of the big keys is is the live performance, and I mean, who beats them now? Right. Um, and you know, when you look at looking at things from a Who perspective again, how many people have the Who invited on stage with them? And it's it's a very short list, but Ed has always he's been on that list that you know he's been invited on stage with him a million times, and, and uh, I think they're right at the top. I mean, they've got to be, you know. Yeah. The, the, I can't think of a better. The thing is, I'm I don't go to a ton of concerts now unless it's well, especially of younger acts, unless my kids are involved. But but um, I mean. The, the the live performance that Pearl Jam puts on, and I don't think it's just me. It's a it's a whole bunch of people would agree with this. Is 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 pretty much the that's the gold standard. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking Where, about you know just in terms of like arena bands, like bands that uh, that I've seen in arenas, and like the best ones are Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, U two, and Pearl Jam. Yeah, and um, you know, obviously, I I never got to see Led Zeppelin. Um, I never got to see the Who with Keith Moon, um, you know, or any of those bands. But I think, I think, you know, certainly in terms of American bands, yeah, on that level. I mean, I, I, I it's hard for me to think of a band that, you know, that that's better at playing like big shows and yeah, and making it come I, off. Other like it, it's like. You know, other than like Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band, I mean that would be the only group I would maybe put ahead of them. Yeah, um, and I've never seen Bruce. I've never seen Bruce, but um, I've never been to a. I've been to a ton of concerts, and I've never been to one where the crowd is more vocal and engaged than a Pearl Jam concert. Right. I mean, they know all the freaking lyrics, and they're screaming them the whole, you know, the whole night. And uh, um, I don't know. I, I've never seen anything like it for sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess another band you'd want to mention for American bands would be the Grateful Dead, and it's Ooh. it's interesting because I think Pearl Jam is somewhere in between Bruce Springsteen and the Grateful Dead. So like, if you if you want that experience kind of fused in in an arena like uh, environment, I think uh, yeah. Pearl Jam is hard to beat. Yeah. Um, it's well, weird. I've never you know it's like Ed's Ed's uh, holy trinity, if you will, is like I said, is Pete, Bruce, and Neil. And I never, and maybe it's because I grew up in England. I don't know, but Bruce and Neil, I never got. I just never got into their music. Oh man! Um, so I think I got some work to do there. But and I just read um, Bruce's autobiography last year, and it blew me away. Yeah. 
Um, and I still just, I, I tried to listen to some of his music after that. And I still, uh, there's some songs that I can get into, but it just doesn't hit me the right way for some reason. See, as I, a, I don't know. As a Pearl Jam fan, once you get into Bruce and Neil, I, I mean, those are two important skeleton keys in the history of Pearl Jam and, and their music. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Essential. Uh, like Neil well, Young, Neil Young, certainly in the nineties. And I think, yep. you know, in terms of like how to survive a career when you are, uh, expected to be this huge band, you know, yep. Pearl Jam sort of emulating Neil Young's ability to kind of be popular and then also do really weird stuff at the same yep. time. But, and then later, I mean, Bruce Springsteen seems to be a clear model for Eddie Vedder on how to kind of grow old gracefully. Yep. And rock and roll, and and have your dignity and, and integrity intact. Yeah, um, and I think he's learned the right lessons from Bruce in that regard. He, yeah, absolutely. Eddie, I think, definitely has that kind of gravitas that Bruce. Well, no one has the gravitas of Bruce, but like he is, uh, he's right after Bruce in terms of yeah. uh, on the gravitas power chart. There you go. <laughs> and that was, you know. Um, the uh, that was the first concert ever, Eddie ever saw it was Bruce in Chicago. Yeah. So, and then and and of course Neil was the he was the you know he was kind of uh, he kind of guided Pearl Jam during the you know the mid nineties when when there were you know Ed was having issues with stalkers and stuff like that that you know the stuff that led to the to Lucan the yeah. Lucan song. And um, and then you know Pearl Jam went off and and became Neil's backing band, right? Um, kind of while Ed was was dealing with that stuff, but uh, right. So and and they opened, what well, they opened for Neil, yeah, um, early '90s, something like that. So so yeah. he was definitely there as a kind of guiding light for them. And of course he's he's giving the speech, the induction speech at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame too. Yes, coming full circle. Yeah. Right. Yep. Pearl Jam. Bruce, Neil, all part of the continuum. Yeah. And I'll be curious to see where the continuum goes from here. But, uh, yeah. Mark, it was great talking with you, man. I appreciate your insight on this. No, thanks. Thank you. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a pleasure. For all right, man. All right, take care. All right, that was Mark Wilkerson talking about the last decade or so of Pearl Jam's history, wrapping up our Biology Ology series. And... I hope you guys had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun doing this. You know, I said at the outset that it was my goal to sort of figure out how Pearl Jam survived. Like, that was the narrative of this series. To talk about how a band goes from not overnight success, but very early success. Just enormous fan uh, stardom and popularity. And uh, how do they navigate that as they grow up in public? as their music evolves, as their music moves into areas that aren't as commercial. How do you stay together? How do you continue to be a band for more than you know 25 years, almost 30 years now? And I think we answered that question. You know, I, It's not really something you can sum up in one sentence, but if I had to, I would say that uh, Pearl Jam survived because they wanted to survive. They had to. They had the drive to survive, and sometimes it was like looking for your keys in the dark. <laughs> you know, they didn't. You know, it was sort of a, a, a haphazard process. They made mistakes. They stumbled, but that drive to stay together, that feeling that there was something special among these people, uh, 
guided them forward and and brought them to the point where they are now about to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and and to be a band that really seems like you know we're going to be seeing Pearl Jam for as long as they they want to be together you know this seems like a band that you can count on they're going to be together in perpetuity as long as everyone's healthy as long as egos don't get too out of control you know this is a band that I hope I I want to take my kids to go see someday you know like another 10 you know they I, I gotta wait another maybe 10 years but I, I'm I feel faith that Pearl Jam will still be together at that time and that makes me happy I'm glad this is going to be a band that uh, will hopefully you know be one of those bands that you pass down from generation to generation um it's been great talking Pearl Jam with you guys. I'm looking forward to, to not talking about Pearl Jam next week, getting into some other topics. We always have a lot to discuss here in Celebration Rock. Uh, but thanks again, everybody, for checking us out, and uh, we will see you again next week.